Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and I am so grateful to have this place to talk about faith and politics and these big, important ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting, accomplished people of goodwill in good faith. And it is an honor to share that our program is part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. And hey, we've added a lot of new listeners in recent weeks and months, which is awesome. So I have a couple of huge favors to ask. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already. Also, another way you can help us is to tell a friend about this program. We're really trying to grow our audience and include more folks in the these kinds of conversations. Just tell them they can find us on any podcast app by typing in Talking Politics. And the talking is with an apostrophe at the end and, and no G, T A L K I N apostrophe politics. And lastly, if you could take a minute to give us a good rating and leave a review, that would mean a ton. It really does make a difference in terms of how our show ranks and is discovered and helps get the word out so more people can participate in these civil, nuanced, and fun conversations like the one we're having today with Bob Cusack. Bob Cusack serves as editor-in-chief of The Hill, a media platform that provides nonpartisan reporting on the inner workings of government and the nexus of politics and business. Bob has been reporting on policy and politics in Washington, D.C. since 1995 and has interviewed top newsmakers such as uh, former President Donald Trump, Speaker, former Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority, former Senate Majority Leader, what, wait, so, yeah, former Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. He regularly appears on news networks as a nonpartisan political analyst and has won six awards from the National Press Club and the Society of Professional Journalists. Bob is also the only person in history to win an Oscar, an Emmy, the U.S. Open in Wimbledon. No, that's fake news. I'm just kidding. But Bob is an accomplished tennis player and has appeared on numerous movies and TV shows like Wonder Woman and Veep which must have been super cool. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? Hey, Corey, thanks for asking me on. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to start a little bit with your background. You grew up in New York City, and I'm a Jersey boy. I started in in, in, in New York, grew up on the Jersey side, but I know uh, we probably grew up right around the same time. There are so many great newspapers, the New York Times, the Post, Newsday, Daily News, or, or niche papers like the Village Voice. Or maybe you were a, actually, now that I think about it, were you a backstage guy? But seriously, <laughs> being around so many great papers, was journalism always something you wanted to pursue? Yeah, I was, I I, I enjoyed reading both the New York Times and, and the New York Post. I remember going with my mom on, you know, late Saturday nights, you could buy the Sunday paper, the Sunday New York Times. And that was just a childhood memory. But yeah, I was always interested in journalism, I, initially, I thought it was going to be sports journalism. A long-suffering Mets and Jets fan. My uh, condolences. I'm a Mets uh, fan, but I, I adopted the, the Giants. I couldn't lose all, all, you know, all over the place. You know, <laughs> it's 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 been a rough it's been a rough life. I blame my father. <laughs> I 
<laughs> so he, he wouldn't let me become a Yankees or Giants fan. And the New York Giants, I don't mind because, as you know, they, they've knocked off the, the hated Patriots. So right. the Yankees, yeah, you either got to like the Yankees or hate them. So <laughs> but but yeah, I was always interested, but I thought I would go into sports journalism. And then after really after college, I started looking for a job and the economy wasn't great. And and uh, politics drew me in and partly because they're. There are similarities between politics and sports. Very unpredictable. There's there's always, you know, okay, you think some X is going to happen and then Y happens. And even though I'm a partisan sports fan, I like being the referee in politics. It's just something I, I don't care, you know, and the Hill doesn't care which side is is up or down, but it's our job to say which side is up or down. And that of course that can change almost on a on a daily basis. So yeah, I was I was always interested in journalism, but thought it would go the sports route and then but I've really enjoyed covering politics since since 1995. You know, it's it, you, you said something interesting that I, I want to follow up on, and I'm not sure if you can even comment on this because, as as mentioned, the Hill is is nonpartisan outlet. But it, I find myself supporting conservative elected officials at times, but also you know left leaning, left of center politicians at times. But in recent years, in the Trump era, there's a difference between someone who leans right someone who leans left versus folks who've displayed anti-democratic tendencies. Has the Hill as an organization, or you personally, become maybe partisan in that regard? Or is that even folks, you know, when January 6th happened, is that, you know, is that just part of the political, you have to stay nonpartisan even in that regard? Yeah, you do have to stay nonpartisan. And just in, I don't vote in presidential election years. It drives my wife crazy because she's an independent voter. And I have voted before. And I think it's fine for journalists to vote, but it's a personal choice. And I just decide not to go down that route. And my wife is, if you did, who would you vote for? And I'm like, I just don't go through that process anymore. <laughs> However, I do think uh, it is important to say well, facts are facts. There are not alternative facts, <laughs> like Kelly yeah. and Connie said. You know, and and when I, I think it was a good thing for democracy that a number of the election deniers lost in the last mm. election. I do think that's important, but you do have to, while you know, I go on TV and 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 analyze politics, you got to be careful to not give your opinion. And sometimes I've had to say, hey, listen, I'm not a I'm not an opinion columnist, but it's but. When elections are fair, you've got to say they're fair. And when people are saying they're unfair or they're rigged, and remember, you know, former President Trump, who I've interviewed four times, who called me out of the blue a year ago to complain about a story that was perfectly fine. He had a lot of time on his hands at the time. <laughs> now he's a little busier running again for president. His, his He lost Iowa in the 2016 Republican primary in the caucus there. And he said that was rigged. Ted Cruz won it. So you, you just have to stick to the facts, but you don't have to be, I, I think, too many in the media pick fights with either Trump or others. And and sometimes it's it's better to hold your fire and let your work you know, speak for itself. Yeah. Since you bring up your your interviews with Trump, there's it, it didn't start with Trump, but there's a long sordid tradition of leaders and public figures attacking the media, you know, obviously, most notably here in recent years with former President Trump. He often report, refers to reporters and media outlets as the enemy of the people. How can you deal with attacks like that? And we're actually how do you equip your journalists? Because you're 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 a captain of a, a team, if you will, of great journalists, great reporters. How do you equip them to manage an environment like this? Because sometimes it gets downright hostile, if not uh, bordering on violence. Yeah, I, we we advise our reporters, and we have a social media policy that 
when everybody is losing their heads, keep yours. Also, you know, don't get into fights in writing, whether that's text or email. You do have to have a certain amount of distance to report on, whether it's a a tragedy like 9-11 or, or a political event, you've got to you've got to keep your emotions in check. And usually, and that's why, you know, a lot of people try to bait you on Twitter. I, I don't get involved in that. It's just something that you, it's just a, you're not going to win that game and you're likely going to lose it. So that's the kind of advice we tell people. Just keep your head on, be professional. And the best compliment that we get, and I've gotten it from both sides of the aisle, is you guys are tough but fair, mm. and that's what we want to be. We want to be tough but fair. We're going to give you. We're going to give you good. You know, we'll listen to you, but we're also going to tell you, hey, this story you're not going to you're not going to be putting up on your wall. But this is the angle we're going with. So it gives them an idea of they're not going to like it, but they're going to respect the fact that you're upfront and transparent about this story. And some reporters over the years, not recently, but maybe a while back, would say, I don't have to tell the angle of my story to the people I'm talking to. No, no, you do. Especially if it's a, you know, think of, I tell our reporters, if you're going to be in the Washington Post and it's a critical story, number one, I would imagine you want to be contacted, but also you would want to know the angle of the story so you can respond accordingly. And so sometimes that does resonate with reporters and like, okay, yeah, that's, we, we, we have to be fair. I think too much of the media plays gotcha sometimes mm, yeah. uh, where they're looking into something for a long time and maybe they don't find a smoking gun, but because they've looked into something that questions somebody's ethics or is controversial, they'll run with it. I, I, I think you got to be very careful and we've done it. We've certainly written tough stories where it's led to people losing their jobs because they messed up, but you've got to be fair because your reputation is everything, especially in Washington. You know, that that answers another question I had in looking at I've looked at a lot of the criticisms of CNN's now infamous town hall uh, with Donald Trump. And part of the criticisms, I thought, man, if you were in that room, how you how CNN got that, that that was quite a get, you know, getting that interview. And you've interviewed him four times. So the first time is quite a get. But having been invited back, there has to be something to balancing being fair, doing your job as a reporter versus but but not airing into you know what fox fox news their their morning show they'll often do basically a puff piece for politicians that they're you know they're cheering for so how do you balance that out in being fair getting the big interview while not going into puff pieces like that i think it's a challenging time especially now to to interview trump I interviewed him four times before he became president, and then our White House team interviewed him after that. And as I said, I talked to him about a year ago. You do have to, the first time we interviewed him, it was Kevin Cirilli and I went up to Trump Tower. They said, you have 15 minutes with Mr. Trump, and we we got 80 minutes. Why oh, did we wow. get 80 minutes? Because we, we were asking good, tough questions, but we weren't being gotcha. And Trump in that interview said, Four different times, he said, be fair, be fair. And we put that in the story as well. So I think that transparency, what we like to do is make news. And I understand what Caitlin Collins had to challenge. And, and, and listen, she did challenge Trump. But at the same time, sometimes, you know, he can be tornado-like. And you're, <laughs> and you're dealing with a tornado. And it, it's tough to get a word in edgewise. And but but you have to push back when when he's making false claims about the election or, or anything else. And then, unfortunately, that takes away from the time you have to make news. 
but he is he is a great guy to interview because if you come up with a with a very direct question, unlike many other politicians, he will give you a direct answer and you will make news. Yeah, yeah. Now, I we already got into the the meat of of what I wanted to talk about, but I do want to take a step back because there's some other aspects of your background that I was really intrigued by. In fact, we have something in common. When I was a kid, I grew up in the New York theater scene. But for me, the New York theater scene wasn't the Majestic or the Schubert. It was basically renting out a storefront in Chelsea and turning it into a little fifty seat theater. I understand that uh, you you grew up similarly off 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 Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is that is a unique similarity. I don't share that with many other people. But my parents had full-time jobs. My dad was a salesman. He's retired now. My mom passed away two years ago, but she was a teacher for the deaf in New York City. And she taught the deaf for over 20 years. And I I got to know a little bit of sign language back then. But what they would do at night on the weekends is that they would put on, I think Thursday night into going into Sunday, they would put on either Agatha Christie plays on at night. And then we do children's plays during the weekend. And I would be, we would put on Jack, you know, Jack and the Beanstalk. I would be Jack. And then we'd have audience participation. It was, you know, very much, as as you say, off, off, off Broadway. The most people we could fit into this converted international school in Midtown Manhattan was about a hundred people. But my parents got to, to meet a number of people who were in their plays that the actors would not get paid. We just used the money we got to pay the rent. Right, so right. It was, you know, so the actors, you know, weren't doing it to get paid. They were getting getting experience, but they got to know James Cromwell, Larry David. Years later, I wrote a, a script and Larry David took a look at it. He politely declined, but <laughs> because I knew my dad, he he looked at it and he was very nice about it. But but overall, it was a unique way to grow up because each sometimes I would do the lights, I would act in it, and that and and that just seemed normal to me. And then and then as I got a little bit older, I got more into sports and I let my parents do the theater thing. But I, I think it's helped me in in this job because it helps you when you're going on doing media appearances or podcasts or TV stuff. Having that acting background does give you some some confidence that you may have lacked if you didn't have that unique experience. I was also curious if doing the work of a great writer like Agatha Christie has informed your work now as a as a journalist. Just the literature, journalism, they're they're really intertwined and, and the art of finding the right words and phrases. Yeah, no, I, I think and obviously those plays have twists and turns, and that's what you need. And I've dabbled in screenplay writing and and written a couple and entered some contests and it's done well. It's not quite gonna be on the, the big screen yet, but but I've always enjoyed fiction writing as well. And sometimes it's an escape from the news business. And and I really do respect other journalists who are able to to put out books, uh, f- fictional books like Mitch Album and uh, many others. They do both the news and creative stuff. But yeah, yeah, it does, you you do recognize, hey, this is an, that this is a really put together play, and you learn. Uh, it's all about storytelling, you know, yeah. whether it's. You know, whether you're doing a story about politics or you're doing a story about entertainment, it's still got to be a compelling, interesting story. When people ask me, what are you looking for? I'm looking for interesting stuff. No one ever says, let me go. Let me go watch a a boring movie. Let me read a boring article. That's what I really want to do right now. No, you (laughs) you, want to read interesting, thought provoking stuff. And that's that's what I tell our team. So I'll look for you going the way of Frank Rich and, and developing some great, great stories <laughs> and writing some great screenplays, doing doing your your own Veep update or something like that. Exactly. Exactly. I, I had the pleasure of talking to Frank Rich once. He is a very talented guy. 
That's awesome. Now, on career-wise, I've, I've heard you say a couple times that when you got your job at Inside Washington, you barely knew how a bill became a, becomes a law, let alone what OMB stands for. So number one, did you learn what OMB stands for? But, <laughs> but seriously, how, how did you get your job at, at, that's a really respected publication. Many, many of the best reporters and editors came, came out of Inside Washington. How'd you get your job there? Yeah, it's an interesting place to work. And Inside Washington Publishers still exists to this day. Back then, it was a newsletter print publication. Now they put out newsletters, but it's also obviously everything else online focused. And so they cover government agencies. So any any newsletter you hear about Inside EPA, I worked on Inside OSHA, then there's Inside CMS, there's Inside US Trade. And as you mentioned, there's very talented journalists started there, John Bresnahan, who works for Punchbowl News Punchbowl, now. Punchbowl, yeah, one of my favorites, yeah. Jim, Jim Vandehei, I've known for 25, 30 years. Wow. He, he started there. Ian Swanson, our managing editor, my deputy, he he was there as well. So there's just been a, a boatload of others who, and so when I got there, I didn't know anything. Google didn't exist. My boss handed me some memo. I couldn't make heads or tails of it. And he said, we need to figure out what, what OMB thinks of this. And I thought, I need to figure out what OMB is. And you couldn't just Google OMB because Google didn't exist back then. So <laughs> so it was it was, it was was a painful process. I actually never took a poli-sci class in college. So I really didn't know even the fundamentals. But I had two great editors, John Grano and Donna Hazley, who trained me. And they held my hand. And and then eventually I realized, and, and especially I needed to learn the, the lingo of Washington. It's really learning a new language with all the acronyms, especially when you're going really deep into labor policy or energy policy or whatever. And inside Washington goes really deep in policy. But I really learned how Washington operates at inside Washington. And then years later, I started, I started a healthcare publication for inside Washington. And then The Hill was looking for a healthcare reporter in 2003, 20 years ago. And uh, thankfully, I got the job, and 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 then then they realized I could manage people, and so I only got one year where I, I could just do my own thing, <laughs> and then I then I became managing editor a year later, and I became editor in chief in 2014. So I'm curious to to know. You mentioned your editors at Inside Washington that they held your hand and really helped you learn the lingo of Washington. I would imagine they also helped you learn how to do good reporting and and good writing. Is how, tell, tell me a little bit more about that training process. And now you're in their seat. How is that? Is it different than how you're training reporters now? Well, there's a lot of similarities, honestly. What I would do is, you know, back then, and I remember talking to John Bresnan about it, newsrooms were loud, right? Because you didn't text, you didn't email back then, you called people. So, so the goal was, I'm going to call 50 people a day. Oh. And so, that's we called a bunch of people and I would I would go to my editors and I would say, this is what they said. And then they would say, this is what they mean. Let me translate that because they're spinning you a little bit. Oh. And so in a lot of ways, there was a similarity to, to now it's different now. Newsrooms aren't as quiet, but you still need to you need to figure out what people are thinking, not what they're saying. What's on their desk? What's what's on Kevin McCarthy's desk? What's on the president's desk? What are they saying? What are they thinking? Because a lot of times what they're saying is a show. It's like a theater thing, but it's and they're acting a role. Like when John Boehner had to adopt Ted Cruz's strategy of either shut, you know, you're going to shut down the government if if we don't get Obamacare repealed. That didn't work. John Boehner went to the floor and after he was pressured by the right to basically, you know, adopt, you know, really 
adopt a strategy that was never going to work in the first place. It didn't work. And we've seen both parties adopt strategies that aren't smart. But I could tell he was acting on the House floor. He knew it was a bad strategy. And 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 that's that's where you have to tell young journalists, be skeptical, but also listen to them and try to try to figure out who are the sources and the best sources on both sides of the aisle are ones who admit when it's when they're struggling. It's like yeah. a losing team. Don't say you're not losing. You're losing. OK, admit it. So when you're winning, we're going to give you more credibility because, OK, you said you were losing back then. And 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 now you are winning because you've done X, Y and Z. So it's it's very much a game. Unfortunately, the game has gotten a little more intense <laughs> over the last 20 years and, yeah. and unfortunately violent. And we've seen January 6th was something that was very unsettling for me, who's been up there a lot of times. We had our teams up there. It was just it was a very rough day for for a handful of our reporters and uh, you know it's just something you'll never forget. So that wow that's that's interesting. So you, were were you in um, in the capital that day? That- no, I was not. I was actually at home and we had we had minimal people that could just like other news organizations cuz we're still in the pandemic era. And but so I'm at home on my computer and I remember going in for a media hit. I was going on Fox the day before and I told my wife, I said, listen, don't worry. I'm, this was January 5th. I said, don't worry. I'm not going in the city on January 6th because, I, you know, it's going to be pretty rough. Did I think it would be that rough? No, I did not. But even on January 5th, you could you could feel the tension. You could, The Trump supporters had arrived and there was real tension. But what was very different that day was and I've been on Capitol Hill where there have been shootings and it's scary because you don't know what's going on. You don't have the information. The, the sometimes the speakers don't work really well. But the thing was there is that they started to evacuate homes in the Capitol Hill area. And I had never heard that. So I emailed our entire staff and I said, for those who are up there, don't be a hero. Make sure, you know, you're safe and all that kind of stuff. And Scott Wong, a former political reporter who joined us in 2014 and now works for NBC News, he responded, Bob, thanks. You know, we're in the Capitol building, so we're in the safest place that we can be. And I thought, yes, you are. And then sure enough, the Capitol was breached. Wow. Sorry, my, my dog just arrived and he's making all kinds of dog noises behind me. So, so. <laughs> I know that I have three dogs. Believe me, <laughs> they come into camera sometimes. <laughs> you know, I, I was thinking, I, I know what your first what your first theater piece can be. It, it will be like what Strindberg and Ibsen did for modern drama, where you you write a play where politicians actually speak the quiet part out loud all the time. It's all subtext. You know? Exactly. That's exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly so, so, right. Sometimes, sometimes that's gold because, you know, especially in the Trump era, they actually do say the quiet part out loud. <laughs> but sometimes. Uh, yeah, yeah, sometimes. <laughs> I did I did want to ask you about Nexstar, the group that now owns the Hill. For listeners, they Nexstar also owns broadcast and cable brands like the CW, News Nation, the Food Network, and Cooking Channel. So Nexstar bought the Hill in 2021. So uh, aside from the obvious financial benefits, what were some of the goals of being acquired by a company like Nexstar Media Group? Well, I was involved. The, the Hill was up for sale and I was involved in the sales calls. And there were a number of hedge funds that were bidding for us. And I was I was always rooting, honestly, for Nexstar to win because Nexstar is a media company. They have 200 local stations around the country, some in smaller markets, some in big markets like WPIX in New York. And But they can't buy any more local stations because FCC said you have enough. So the great thing about Nexstar is that just like the Hill and studies have shown this, that they are in the middle. So they, the big part of the reason they bought us is that 
that studies have shown we are in the middle, that both sides read us, both sides get angry <laughs> at us. That's fine. And it's it's helped us in that we, you know, we're doing we're making more cable appearances on their new cable show while also doing appearances elsewhere. Certainly Nextar wants us to to get to talk about our coverage no matter what. But it's 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 enabled us to also sometimes work with local stations on big stories because they're on the ground outside the beltway. Maybe it's an environmental water story, which we've talked to people and, and partnered with. So it's uh, it, the, the partnership is still flourishing. And, and we launched a, a new show called The Hill on News Nation that we're very yeah. excited about. So, you know, it's it's been new opportunities that we didn't have before. But even before Nextar bought us, you know, we not, we have an events team, we have opinion, we have our print edition, of course, online. It used to be we just be, were a newspaper. That was it. We had yeah. nothing else, just newspaper, a very small staff. And uh, but now it's grown to be a, a a big business. And, you know, listen, the competition out there is very impressive. So you've got to you got to be on your feet. And sometimes when we come up with a story idea that we think, wow, that's a really good one. The next thought is we need to do it very quickly because we're smart, but they're, we're competing against a lot of smart people. So we need to do it as fast as we can. Yeah. I do want to ask you about that, but I before we move on, I, I it's worth noting, I did a little bit of digging on Nexstar. They have a journalistic integrity statement, part of which says, our journalism principles are accuracy and truth, fairness and impartiality, independence, transparency, excuse me, independence, transparency, minimize harm and respect the law. So <laughs> that's great. And I, that seems to align everything I've read of your work and, and on the Hill, that definitely aligns with what the Hill is all about. How do you keep up with the 24-7 nature of today's journalism and, and, and like the condensed news cycles while still maintaining that that basic journalistic integrity? Yeah, it's it's really comes down to having the staff because let's say let's say two, and in 2007, Politico launched and they did change the whole people had gotten a little sleepy in the in the political media business. We didn't do weekend stories. OK, now we have an entire weekend team. We don't have an overnight editor, but if something happens overnight, that's big news. And this happened many years ago. Ted Kennedy died and it was announced in the middle of the night. Mm. Somebody will get up and, and, and post it. So we have people working till election night. We go all night. We have editors and reporters working 24-7 Christmas. We're posted on you know New Year's Day, more of a skeleton crew, but you've got to keep feeding the beast. And you do have to do it in a way that, and I think our our growth has been, you know, substantial. We get more traffic than Politico and Axios. And I think part of that is that we're very dogged. We're down the middle, but but also we 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 are fair. And I think that others have moved left. I'm not talking about Politico or Axios here, but others have moved left or right for business reasons. And I have people who come to me who say, listen, they're not they're not government insiders. They're not insiders at all. They're just regular people. And they come to our site just to figure out what's going on. And we don't tell people how to think. They can think for themselves. We just want to present it. And that doesn't mean boring. We can write very interesting analytical stories, but we're not, you know, we're not, we're not taking a side. We're, we're, we're saying, okay, this is the way it is. This is, this is so-and-so has the edge in this leverage game. And we obviously talk to people, and, but it is something you've got to, it's not easy because in presidential election years, some reporters subconsciously, I think, get a little worked up. <laughs> and you've, I've had some uncomfortable conversations, not many, but some with both the journalists on the left and right who don't realize that what they just filed 
is 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 off and it's it's a little biased and and we need to rework the story before it's ready for prime time yeah yeah so how do you you your paper does analysis and commentary obviously it has the the opinion section that, that's clearly opinion so is it is it certain words certain phrases what what are you what are you looking for when a reporter doesn't realize their bias that's coming out how do you how do you detect that it's it's word choice. It really is, and it's it's interesting. Years ago, when I was in college, I did I did study journalism, even though I, I foolishly didn't do any internships, and that that hurt my job prospects getting out of school. But you were but, busy pe- playing tennis, so to yeah, be fair, I, was playing, I, I had an excuse half half the semesters anyway. And then I did I did a play another semester. So, but I could have I could have done more. But I I compared the same news event, and I took the Washington Post and the Washington Times. And did a kind of a paper on it, and it was it was just striking of how you know the the word choices were different, and and it did show that you know hey everybody has has their own style of writing number one, but uh, but also you know there there are some publications and there's a need for it. Some people love reading you know they they love reading Breitbart or Huffington Post. So yeah. there there's certainly a there's a demand for left leaning and right leaning content. It's just not what we do. But we do as you mentioned, we do have opinion from both the left and right and they swing away. But we 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 really track it closely so it's even. It's also a matter of what stories are being covered in the first place. Uh, it seems that th- there's a new phrase, one of my favorite new phrases of 2023, it's epistemological bubbles. So <laughs> some of my friends don't even realize that, for example, the first two years of of Biden's administration, there were actually big pe- pieces of legislation that got passed, not so coincidentally bipartisan pieces of legislation. So how do you make those decisions in terms of prioritizing which stories are are being pursued? It's the our editorial process starts with, and we hire our journalists with the thinking. I, I said earlier that I, my hand was held when I started in Washington. At the Hill, editors don't have the time to do that. So we've got to hire people who can hit the ground running. And so the onus is on reporters to come to their editors and pitch ideas. Now, certainly editors, and that's why editors are editors, but that's the fun part. You see your fingerprints all over the publication because you have so many story ideas that you're handing them out to, to reporters and hopefully they're making them better. So that's so that's a process. And we look at this and we have a daily call where we look at the story budget list and we say, OK, what's on this list and what's not on this list? Some things and we don't think I don't think we're really capturing the story in these in this proposed lead. And then other times we're like, what else is going on that we're we're not tracking? And um, now that I, I, you're totally right about story selection because some things you flip around the cable channels and wow, you're seeing two different versions of reality. Yeah, <laughs> and I guess you, you decide which which is the reality you want to live in. But that's very important. You know, what are we going to do? Are we going to you know, the, Congress is investigating Hunter Biden? Is that a legitimate thing to look into? Yes, because Congress is investigating him and. But we also have to say, is there a there there? Have they found the smoking gun? The same thing with Benghazi, where Republicans honestly did not find the smoking gun. And they dragged Hillary Clinton and they didn't present anything new. You know, that's what news organizations and politicians, especially investigators, have to do. What did they unearth that we we didn't know? The January 6th commission, certainly there was a lot of stuff that they reported that we knew. There was some stuff there I didn't know. There was new stuff in there. 
So that that's what they've, you know, so, but it's a very good question because those are the debates we have. And a lot of times it's not, okay, should we cover it? It's okay, we can cover it, but we're not going to cover it like Breitbart or the Huffington mm. Post. We're going to cover it in our own way. And it's how you do things. You know, that's that's the important thing. It's it's kind of like what, one of the things we're always watching out for is if one, let's say, and the best stories are like R versus R, Republican versus Republican is far more interesting than Republican versus Democrat and, and Democrat versus Democrat. Fascinating stuff. So when there's an intra-party fight or somebody says something that maybe Mitch McConnell doesn't like, we're always asking the question, did you get a heads up on that? Did, you know, did, and, and because the heads up is very important in Washington, whether it's on a story, we're going with the story, you got to give the heads up, got to get comment, but it's also very interested. It's interesting in politics that if, if you're going to go after one politician goes after another, sometimes, you know, it's good to, to send a little note that I'm coming after you. <laughs> it's ju- Yeah, it's juicy. We're, we're doing exactly. this. So zooming out for a second, the news business, have you studied the trajectories of of adjacent companies like Vice Media and BuzzFeed that have faltered? Specifically, there are there any lessons about what to do, what not to do to avoid the kinds of layoffs and cuts and bankruptcy that that we've seen from from other companies in the in the industry? Certainly the industry now is is I think struggling. You're seeing that with layoffs. In my 20 years at the Hill, we have let some people go, but we have never had layoffs. We had during COVID, we did take pay cuts, but the newsroom was not was unaffected by it. And so it's a matter of really staying on top of things and and keeping current. And that's and I've seen publications who really were were clicking on all cylinders. But if they lose some people and then you don't replace them or, you know, leadership matters, you need to have strong editors who are guiding. And and sometimes if that breaks down or if you lose your way, I'll give you an example. We're called The Hill. And before Barack Obama became president, we didn't even have a White House correspondent. Okay, Mm. now. So we've started to write more. We're writing more about state politics. There are a number of state level races, you know, not federal races that we that we wrote about last night, but we're not getting away from our bread and butter, which is Congress and politics. So yes, we are writing about different things and we're writing about, you know, we wrote about Tiger Woods almost getting, you know, killing himself in that car accident because it was just big news. He's been, he's, he's been dipping his toe into politics, but, but it wasn't a pure political story. But our growth has been in going national while also giving the political junkies what they need. They didn't abandon us. It's really appealing to honestly friends and family who are not insiders and and writing in a way that's not dumbing it down, but it's understandable. It's not, you know, we used to put like words like cloture in a headline. Nobody knows outside of Washington what cloture means. You know, yeah. we don't do that anymore. Yeah. So that that's important. And I think some of some of the organizations, and I I'm not on the inside of Vice or BuzzFeed, but sometimes when you move away from your bread and butter, that can hurt you, especially when you have new competitors. You have my old boss, Jimmy Finkelstein, just launched The Messenger. You have Semaphore. So the competition is as intense as it ever has been. And that's why we have to be on our toes every day. I'm hearing more and more about Semaphore, but I, I'm. you mentioned Brez before, John Bresnahan. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of what Anna Palmer and Jake Sherman are that whole team at Punchbowl is doing. I'm also a huge fan, you probably know, of the Dispatch, which has a 
I wouldn't say a partisan slant. They, they're just informed largely by conservative philosophy, but they do great reporting and great analysis. Are there other certain reporters or outlets that you are regularly reading that, that you think are doing good work in the space that I, I would imagine that as, a, as an athlete, you're looking at other competitors that push you and your team to do even better? Oh yeah, the competition always makes you better, and and it it is a it's a it's a friendly competition, and we've had people from Politico come to us and vice versa. But listen, I think Punchball has done great work, and they've had a, a good launch. Politico, Axios, some great journalists, Chad Program at Fox News, really good. The guy's never wrong, and he, he's breaking a lot of stuff both on air. I think he's he's a really he's one to follow if you don't follow Chad. I, I you know I have to read so much, but honestly, I. I'm scanning during the week. I, I can't really read. I, I catch up on reading, which is the most important thing I think that I do for my job because it triggers story ideas. I do that on the weekend because I'm just running around and 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 we're all doing our jobs and and really doing deep dives into longer form journalism. I think the Wall Street Journal newsroom is really good. I, I think that's that's the best newspaper general interest that I read. I, I just think they have a quirky story below the fold on on A1 and they're very balanced. And I, I and I actually do a lot of foreign policy coverage, which I've, you know, domestic policy in, in this country can be like a rerun. It's like the Obamacare wars. Will they ever end? You know, so I, I've found myself reading more foreign policy stories just on the weekend because they're they're a little more interesting to me and they're outside my lane. Yeah, yeah. Now, I love listening to your your analysis on the Harvard Harris poll debrief. So, I'd be remiss if I didn't challenge you to do a little bit of rank political prognostication. But big picture, I know we're an eternity's eternity away from the 2024 presidential, but the indictment of Trump in New York by Alvin Bragg's office, um, it, it seemed like the response of his base was that it was purely political, another hoax like the the uh, impeachments or the Mueller investigation. Then last week, when he was found liable of sexual assault and defamation, uh, someone we've had on this show and will be coming back, the Christianity Today editor in chief, Russell Moore, put it that his base just seemed to yawn and move on. Do you see anything different in the reaction of voters, if not in his hardcore base, in independent voters, say in, in key states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, or or in narrow groups of voters like college educated suburban women? Do you see do you see any differences in how they're responding to these um indictments and what the jury found last week? Certainly the Trump supporters and and I I know a number of I know a number of people who can't stand Trump on the right and and a number of them who love him. I think in these things have not hurt him. He has, you know, a lot of people counted out Trump after January 6th. And then after he was deemed the Harvard Harris poll did show this to be the case. He was the biggest loser of the, the midterms because he was picking bad candidates. He was having dinners with controversial people. He was saying dumb things about the Constitution. He's turned it around in 2023. And Mark Penn, who who does the, the polling for of Harvard Harris, is you know, he 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 was one of the first who highlighted that DeSantis's numbers were starting to to crater, and 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 in the podcast that we do every month, we we weren't sure why, but we started to see he was declining. And listen, I think I think you're looking at a very likely a Biden Trump rematch, and honestly, you're going to see a third party get involved. Uh, there are so many people I know. Polls have shown it: two out of three Americans want another choice other than Biden and Trump. So I think whether that's Joe Manchin or somebody else, 
And third parties, you know, because this is too, basically this country really leans into the two-party system. If you bet against third parties, you always win. But if there's one year, maybe a third party could shake things up. Uh, I think it's this presidential cycle because you have Biden. There's some concerns about his age and then the Trump baggage in the short term. Yeah, that indictment helped him. I, I don't you know, his numbers are are very strong. Long way to go. But I don't I don't see anyone who can can take him down. He is a fierce campaigner. And as you know, he gives people nicknames and he labels them and he's very effective. And DeSantis is, is going to really have to step up his game to even compete with him. Yeah. You know, it's uh, looking at the primary versus the general are two very, very different things. I just, I think of, I, I always think of the, the analogy I use is my old Bible study that, that we went to for about 10 years, conservative church, conservative theological church. And, uh, you know, our Bible said we had about 20 to 30 people in that room. It was a young marriage class when I was still young and I still had brown hair instead of gray. But the truth in in reality, the the primary is one thing, like I said, but in the general, if there were 10 to 15 women in that room, 10 to 13 of them are just going to vote R down the line. That's just the reality. But there's one or two or three of them that could be persuaded to either not vote for president, leave it out, do a write-in, or even vote for the Democrat. And that's where I think the difference is, especially in those key key states. We mentioned Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin, but also the North Carolina, Arizona, Georgia. So that, that's where I think the difference is. But you mentioned a third party. I haven't given it a ton of thought, but how how... Do you think it will listen in recent history in the 92 election, we saw Perot have a very significant impact on the election. Arguably, you could say that's one of the main reasons that Clinton was able to win. What impact do you think a third party will have on a 2024 presidential race? The the, the group No Labels, which is a bipartisan group and they have connections in Congress, they're getting their No Labels ballot on the ballots. And by the end of this year, they they hope to get half the states there on the ballots. They say it's not that hard. I They say they don't want to be a spoiler. They want to be in it to win it. And it would I, and they would they would if somebody else emerges other than Biden versus Trump, then they would back off so that they they don't want to be a spoiler. But that's the big thing. Both parties are concerned that 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 no labels or any other third party is going to take a votes away from them. So there's all already been some legal wrangling around ballot access. And certainly, you know, the Republican and Democratic parties are such institutional. They have the money. If you're a third party, Ross Perot obviously had a lot of money and he did have an impact. And at one point, you know, he was winning that race in and then I think he got ended up getting 19 percent the first time around and a little bit less than 10 percent the next time. So Listen, I, I think you've got to expect the unexpected. There's going to be some twists and turns. There are some, you know, a lot of Democrats are not enthused about Joe Biden. They're, they love that he beat Trump. Some are privately doubting whether he can beat Trump again. And but but the difference that Democrats really have going for them is the abortion issue. Mm. Uh, that is something that helped them in the midterm election. It it divides Republicans because they're not all on the same page. I think if the Supreme Court, like apparently Justice Roberts wanted, had set a nationwide 15 week threshold, I think it'd be less of a concern for Republicans. But now it's gone to the states, as you know. So 
you're having these headlines again and again and again, and you're going to lose some of those suburban women, certainly some independence over the issue of abortion. I, you know, I think that certainly if you look at polls, third party, uh, most people, a third trimester, people do not support abortions there. However, positions like Mike Pence's, who I think is going to get in, where you're not having exceptions for abortion policy. I don't think that can win in this country. I think it's very difficult right now with that kind of policy. So for the longest time, I didn't know what, and this is before Biden passed a slew of legislation last year, bipartisan legislation, he did pass the infrastructure bill the year before. I was like, what are they going to run on? Yeah. And then the abortion ruling came out and then there you go. We know what they're running on. You're going to see a lot more of that in 2024. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting stuff. I, I could talk about this for days. Love prognosticating. So <laughs> being in, in your position, again, a nonpartisan, in some ways, bipartisan, multipartisan, <laughs> diverse right. partisan, I got to ask you the TPNR question, the talk politics and religion question. What do you think each of us can do to be able to share space with, have better conversations with? perhaps even nurture relationships with people across our differences, people who think differently than we do, who have different beliefs than we do, who get their news from different sources than we do. How can we do better at talk of politics and religion without killing each other? Is it even possible? It's tough. I think there are ways. You know, it used to be that you didn't talk, you know, religion or politics, certainly at the Thanksgiving dinner. But yeah. now that, that rule has gone out the window. You're saying you know, everyone's talking about politics. It has ruined relationships, yep. especially we've written stories about this. Republicans who, before, you know, were were friends with one another, the two, a couple of Republicans that we know many anecdotes of this were friends for 20 years. And then they were divided over Trump. No, now they don't talk to each other. I think it's important to, and of course, not everyone's going to listen to me, but to to look at CNN, to look at MSNBC, to look at Fox, obviously look at News Nation, but to get different approaches and just see how different organizations are are, are covering some stuff. But I, I do think there has to be some civility that that has to return and I remember ta- when Mike Pence was a, a member of Congress, and believe it or not, when he was in Congress, he was actually a rebel. He he tried to take down one of George W. Bush's biggest domestic policy issues, and he almost succeeded. But he told me that the the bipartisanship really was affected when members started to you know fly in to Washington on a Monday night, and then they leave on. Thursday afternoon, and then they do the same thing the next week. It used to be that a lot of members, not all, would stick around for the weekend. They would get to know each other and and they would become friends. And and listen, you know, there are some, you know, I, I know some some interesting odd, odd bedfellows like Jared Huffman from Democrat from California, progressive as you can be. Garrett Graves, Republican from Louisiana. I believe they're both on the Judiciary Committee. They are the best of friends. And so, you know, we like to highlight when that happens because I think that's a good story. I think it's interesting. And honestly, we need more of that. Yeah, you can fight about the 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 policies, but let's not make it so personal. Yeah. What one of my favorite stories over the last five, 10 years is the infamous car ride that Will Hurd and Beto O'Rourke took from Texas. I just, I really root for that because there are reasonable people. And, and like you say, they're, they're, I think a lot of what is said for the press is, is a show. Part of it is a show for, you know, members of the 
Republican caucus in Congress have to make sure that Kevin McCarthy hears them saying the right things and towing the company line. But uh, your point is is well taken that it's a, it's about relationship building. It's about maybe sticking around or or making a point of grabbing a drink, even if you have to go incognito. <laughs> you know, that's a, a well taken point. Now I have a beef to pick with you. So okay. uh, the Hill is doing great. Uh, television programming, uh, you know, with Next Star News Nation. Uh, but uh, and there are appearances and some uh, podcasting, but I'm, I'm surprised that you haven't really seized the podcasting medium more proactively. What's up with uh, that? You, you know, you're right. Guilty as charged. Uh, we have had a lot of internal discussions on it. And we've dipped our toe into it a little bit, um, but it's something. And, and then we're also, you know, because we're a for profit company. So, you know, we like to make money and then grow our staff as we have o- over the years. But we're also a publication that doesn't hire like 10 reporters at once and then fire five of them. We like to grow, but slowly. Uh, so we so honestly, we avoid uh, layoffs if the economy turns or if you go through a rough patch. But, yeah, it we, we do. We do have some thoughts about getting into the space. But as you know, it's not the same. It's it's you know, it's like some some people have said, well, you get all this traffic, you get over 30 million uniques. If you can just convert a fall, a small fraction into a podcast, you'll make a lot of money. But it, that's easy to say. It's hard to do <laughs> because it, it's just a, it's a different it's a different type of medium. And we we certainly haven't haven't mastered it. So we may have to get some tips from you. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So. In all seriousness, if you ever, I'm such a geek about this. I've been studying the medium in earnest for okay. five years now. I would make a really strong case. Now, listen, it's not going to be, you know, a multi-billion dollar operation right, right out of the gate, but I'm sure you're reading some of the studies that I'm reading that uh, literally billions and billions of dollars more are being uh, advertising dollars, subscription dollars are being filtered into the podcast medium and it's growing uh, by an order of magnitude. Some of the talent doesn't necessarily translate because it is a distinct medium from television. It's a distinct medium from written news, but um, it is a growing medium. I'm I'm a fan of the kind of work that The Hill is doing, but there are unique opportunities for this medium that it it really is a unique space. Okay. Do you have any questions for me? When you are targeting someone to interview, What are you looking for? I am following my curiosity. Nobody's ever asked me that question. I'm following my curiosity. I'm following, I I have a rooting interest to to be quite candid. Mm -hmm. And my rooting interest is in folks that aren't succumbing to the extremist wings that seem to be taking a lot of the oxygen out of the public square. So I'm looking for folks that are excellent practitioners of their craft that are also principled, that are interesting to me. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, so I, I also try to, I, I, part of our mission is to have a diverse range of voices in politics space, in the faith space. So I've had in, in faith and religion, we've had folks that are atheist. We have folks that are Buddhist and, and Hindu, in addition to Jewish and, and Christian in in you know, in the political space, we've had elected officials and it's just a thrill. When I was a kid that I, and I first moved from Jersey to California, Christine Todd Whitman was a governor of New Jersey. I loved Christine Todd Whitman and it, what a thrill it was to have her 
on our program. She yeah. came up as she was, you know, sh- shucking, shucking stalls. She came up and she she started the interview with us with her boots on. You know, it was great. <laughs> what a thrill it was. And and some of my my heroes in journalism, you know, speaking to to Steve Hayes uh, yeah. a couple of weeks ago. That was just awesome. So I follow my my curiosity. I try to stay true to what we're trying to do which is talk politics and religion without killing each other. Folks that are committed to doing this better, to reclaiming some of that space in the public square. And folks like you and your team, I, I really, not to blow smoke, and, and you know, you guys are doing, doing really important work. The fact that you're able to appear on outlets like Fox, as well as, you know, some of your journalists on MSNBC or CNBC, yep. you know, just, it's great. So th- that's what I look for. And well, um, no, I appreciate that because as you know, like, we're, you know, sometimes the loudest people get the most attention. And and I think it's it's smart to to look at, okay, you know, and, and some some members of Congress are like this. They're they're really focused on Twitter followers, you know. Yeah. And so the the more audacious they are, the better. But that's not our thing and 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 that's fine for, for others to do. But I appreciate you and and, and uh, really appreciate that you asked me to do this because these are fun discussions and it's also I always when I do these type of things, it's always interested to to see the questions, you know, what, what people are thinking or what they want to know. Speaking of which, is there anything important I forgot to ask you? I'd say the only thing is, is look out for our News Nation show, The yeah. Hill, which runs Monday through Fridays. I'm on about once or twice a week and my colleagues are on and it's 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 coming into its own. It's it's It goes up against Fox's 5 at 5 p.m. Monday through Friday. But I think the show is showing real promise. And it's we had Larry Hogan on the other day and he made some news saying, no, nope, I'm not interested in the Senate. So we're, we, it's both a combination of, of a panel, but also we get newsmakers on. So uh, look for that. And, and I, I think that that show is going to be something special by the summertime. All right. Two more questions. S- yeah. Since you're speaking about it, how else can folks find your work, the, the Hill the, and, and all the great work that you and your team are doing? Yeah, thehill.com. Basically, you can see what our news is. If you go to our front page, you're going to find everything that you need to know about politics. We So if the Washington Post or a competitor breaks a big story, we're going to credit them, but we'll we'll tell you what happened, what the Washington Post just broke. We also have events on that, on that page. You can follow me at Bob Cusack on Twitter. And yeah, and then occasionally, you know, I do about a, a hundred or so media appearances per year. So look for me there as well with, with hopefully some makeup on. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome. And there's an app. I, ju- I just downloaded the app. So I'll be sure to put a lot of that in the in the show notes. Last question. Do you have any advice for me as a as an aspiring journalist? <laughs> Do you have any advice on how I can improve in my craft as a journalist? I listen, I think you've asked some very good questions. And I also think that your way of when you're especially when, you know, we don't we we didn't know each other, but you you contacted me and I think the way you did it. Because you're always saying, "What's? Let me look this guy up," and and I I, I think your whole approach was was very good. I when I got into journalism, I needed because as I said, I didn't do internships, so I had to. I was very persistent in getting an interview with the the owner of the Baltimore Orioles, and I called him fifty times, but I was always polite about it. Yeah. And eventually, he gave me the interview, and, and it led to a freelance piece, and that led to me getting in the door at Inside Washington. You know, I I just think. Well, for all aspiring journalists, and I talked to a, a number of them, is is just hey, you know, think creatively, be a team player, and don't you know, don't be a jerk. You know, I've I've you know interviewed five to six hundred people in my life, and sometimes I can tell they're they're very smart people, but 
I don't think I'd like working with them. And people have to, when they're in an interview process, you got to realize, and you've also got to come in, you've obviously done a lot of research on me, right? That really helps in a job interview to say, hey, I saw this story that the Hill did, the Hill, you know, flattery always works. Hey, you know, (laughs) I like that story, but maybe there's a follow-up. And so it's it's thinking creatively. And yeah. uh, but I think that the questions you've asked and the persistence you've shown, that, that's a good start. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So you, you got you nailed you got the Peter Angelos interview. Maybe you'll give me some tips on how to get the Steve Cohen interview. <laughs> that would be a dream come true. Anyway, that, uh, would, that would be a good I I'd definitely listen to that one. <laughs> yeah. And to your point of the 150 plus or minus interviews we've done for this program, there's only one, I'm not going to say who it was that ended up being a real jerk, but I won't say who it was. Uh, and maybe okay. I'll share it with you off, off air. But uh, <laughs> thanks so much for coming in. This was a real treat for me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for the questions. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll do it again sometime. I'd love to. I'd love to. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, hit the subscribe button. Like I said before, leave a review, comments, wherever you get your podcasts, and tell a friend about us. Talk politics and religion without killing each other. Or you can find me online at Corey S. Nathan. That's Corey with an E and S's and Sam at Corey S. Nathan. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.